0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, is the Ontario government reconsidering the welfare cuts it previously announced? Andrew Scheer announced that if he's elected, he'd relax the mortgage stress test. What are the potential impacts of that? And the UK Supreme Court rules that suspension of Parliament by Boris Johnson was illegal. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Is uh, the Ford government now reconsidering those welfare cuts that they had previously announced? There's rampant speculation about that right across the province right now. Uh, Apparently the uh, the government has directed municipalities to destroy, that's the word they used, destroy more than 240,000 inserts in the October welfare checks uh, that were outlining the previous cuts that uh, was announced, of course, by the Ford government. Uh, Now, this is rather interesting and and speculating as to whether or not they're rolling this back. Not the first time they would have uh, talked back and and walked back on a a government policy. But I'm wondering about the motives and the alternative uh, possibilities, I guess, in a situation like this. I want to bring Richard Brennan into the conversation, retired journalist uh, who's covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for the Toronto Star for many, many years. Uh, Badger, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Hey, Bill. How are you doing? Good. Are you shocked by this? I know, I get nothing uh, shocks you, I guess, after all.
1: <laughs> I'm not shocked. Um, it, I think some kind of realities head home here. You know, let, let's just go back a, a little ways. Uh, well, I guess over a year. When they're elected, everybody wants to, when they first get elected, they want to be seen as being able to take charge. Well, there's a difference between taking charge and just, you know, uh, going ahead blindly and doing you know some stuff that you might regret later. And I think that fit that fits into this category right now, and just not this, but other. You know, they they've made changes to this, 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 and so as you know, so and your listeners know so many things, and it's really turned uh, the population off on on this uh, for government. My analogy is this: I think we've all done this. You know, you. On a home project, you've rushed into something and did it, you know, I'll say, uh, you know, with – not with abandon, let's say, and you've lived to regret it. The job wasn't done. And this really fits into that. They, you know, they cut this money – the transfers, the transition money, and never really gave it much thought as to what what it actually meant to people, and that's what's happened here.
0: Well, and you and I have talked about this with some of the other cam or, and, 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 and their campaign promises. Now, their their policies, uh, that they seem preoccupied, almost uh, obsessed with the bottom line. And they don't really, I I guess, get too much into that about the implications of this. I mean, you know, if if you're trying to cut money, and and that seemed to be the mantra, of course, of this government, you're going to look at things like this. But as as we find out, of course, the transition child benefit, uh, which they were going to chop, uh, helps about 32,000 kids every month whose families are uh, either not receiving Ontario Child Benefit or the Canada Child Benefit or not getting the full amount of it. So it's a top-up, and it's basically it's, it's money that you can spend on your kids, I mean, you know, to, for supplies, for food and things of this nature. It's, it's rather draconian to think that a government's going to say, yeah, yeah, we're not going to give that to you anymore. So I, I, is, is this really just a, a kind of a, a moral moment here, a reawakening, or is there an alternative mo- movement here?
1: Well, with governments, there's always an alternative, you know, ulterior motive. It, you know, there, there's a couple of things at play here. They're doing, they may be, you know, people say, well, they're doing the right thing. Well, and they are doing the right thing if they they pull back on this. But you have to remember that this government is, their reputation right now is in in the tank. And their popularity, you know, for the, for the, Premier, his popularity is is I think what twenty five, twenty six percent. So there's a whole, there's a lot of things at play here, but the people are on this this two hundred and thirty dollars a month, which which by the way, couldn't if this they cut this and if they got rid of this, it could mean them, you know, the difference between having housing and not having housing. Oh sure, it's it, I mean that gets you know that's where the rubber hits the road here. So people will you know i don't care if they say they're doing it for the wrong reasons they're doing it for the right reasons. if they do it for whatever reason they're doing it you know the people are going to benefit by not having this you know this subsidy this uh, cut because it really it really means a lot to the folks that get it it's it's, it's as simple as that.
0: But if they wanted to come across as the good guy, and you're right, I think any government wants to do that in some way, shape, or form, why didn't they just make an announcement instead of simply sending this notica- notification out that said don't put that insert in there? And, uh, I mean, that leads to speculation that, well, all they're doing is delaying this. It wasn't supposed to go into effect until December 1st anyway, but the fact that they're not putting the notices in here, are they uh, here's, here's where I want to get your read on this. Uh, don't know if you've heard, but there's a federal election coming up on October 21st. Uh, yeah, I've heard rumblings of that. Yeah, and and uh, conspicuous by his absence in this campaign, of course, has been Doug Ford. I mean, he is persona non grata for the Andrew Shear team, right? I mean, even when he was in Etobicoke the other day, around the corner from Ford's house, Doug Ford's nowhere to be seen, and and that's that's not happenstance. I mean, that's obviously a strategy right now. Stay away from me because you're kryptonite to me right now. So, have they also told this government no more bad news announcements? Until after the election, is it you know because we we don't want you with us. We don't want you sitting in the legislature because you tend to open your mouth when you do that, and that that causes problems for us. We also don't want you sending these notices out right now until after the election because in the voters' minds, in many voters' minds, as you know, Richard, a conservative is a conservative, a liberal is a liberal. They don't much make a difference between federal or provincial.
1: Oh, absolutely not, and certainly the, the candidates hear that. You know, the mixed messages at the door. Oh yeah, provincial and federal. You're, you're absolutely right about the delay, and that, that I thought about that, too. And is this just a delay? And you, you know, But I do have to correct you on something, because Mr. Ford might not be appearing, but certainly his name's been raised oh, yeah. almost <laughs> daily by
0: Mr. Trudeau. Yesterday, when uh, Mr. Trudeau was here at downtown Hamilton making the announcement about uh, the proposed uh, pharmacare, 14 times in one speech he mentioned Doug Ford's name.
1: Well, you know, how can you go wrong? I guess you know he, well, he has to do something. Trudeau's got his own problems, so he, I guess he's uh, you know he's become a, a Doug Ford become a convenient foil for for Trudeau, and but and and, and you know what? You, you can't lose with it. It's it's not, not the best politics in the world, quite frankly. But however, politics are different than when I first covered years ago. So, I think there could be something to what you're saying. You know, the less cynical part of me kind of hopes that, you know, that's not not the case. They're not just delaying it because of the federal election and, you know, the kind of heat they're getting from Shear's office. But, I don't know. It it just, it's unfair regardless of what, uh, what, if they just delay it. Then, with this story, it certainly makes it even more difficult for them to just delay it, because then they're going to, you know, they're going to be seen as, you know, even though it's just a speculation piece, as we well know, people read it as fact, you know, as just, you know, that they they are not cutting that, and that they, you know, if they cut it instead after the election. Well, it, it looks it looks even more cynical for the for the government, I would think.
0: And, I mean, I understand that there's a, a lot of pushback on this. I mean, we had Tom Cooper on from the Roundtable for Poverty Reduction the other day, and he was talking about uh, the concern he's heard from an awful lot of people that are, that are clients right now. And another group, the Income Security Advocacy Center, uh, has already told the Attorney General's office that they're going to launch a constitutional challenge against this, saying that the, uh, the cut is discriminatory, arbitrary, and deprives kids of their right to uh, life and security. But that hasn't, that hasn't scared the government off. I mean, you know, there've been a number of challenges, legal challenges, uh, with some of the other policies, including the cap and trade policy, and many others. And uh, certainly, uh, the Ford the government doesn't mind spending up to thirty million dollars to fight the federal government uh, about the carbon program too. So, I mean, that, I don't think that's a factor here. That that may be an extraneous little element to this discussion, but I don't think it's the thing that said, "Oh my God, we don't want to get sued. We better cut the policy." I don't. I don't see that happening.
1: I just wish this government. And you know, and people had to right to throw the last government out. I just wish they'd taken more time. You know, at least let the seat get warm before they start. You know, making major decisions without really knowing the ramifications. It, 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 that's they're they're reaping this. I think right now, what they did several months ago, and that was cut this, cut that you know, slash slash here, trim there. And now they're saying, you know, this is just not... These are just not dollars and cents that you're cutting. What you're doing is affecting people personally. The people that are, you know, strained to make, you know, make ends meet. You know, the ones that are trying to, you know, uh, you know, looking for a leg up so they can, you know, move on and, and not have to go on welfare. It's it just so many... Th- ramifications here and that's what i think this government and they're not alone in other governments in the past is done they just didn't think what you know what the the ramifications are what what they do i I used to tell my kids you know if you do this think about what you do and what it's going to mean two days from now or half an hour from now before you do something think of what the possibility is and i did, again this government has failed to do that and and now they're seeing what you know what happens
0: well we've seen this happen in the past and and because we get caught up in the in the you know the the election campaign and the election promises and you know we hear something that we like and well, I remember, how many years ago was it that John Kretchen said, look at you, you know, re elect us and I'll eliminate the GST? That's what, and if, hey, yeah, we hate the GST. That's why we voted the Mulroney government. Uh, and then, the, of course, he got elected. And, the, and somebody obviously sat him down and said, Mr. Prime Minister, do you know how much money you're going to lose if you do that? All right, all right, I'm not going to do it. And, and we were outraged by that, of course. But uh, So that happens from time to time. And there well, might actually be some the remorse.
1: Helicopters, you remember that? Yeah. yeah. And that cost, that cost over a billion dollars the federal government costs over a billion dollars to cancel that contract way back when. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. It's, you know, don't shoot your mouth off unless you know you can back it up. And oftentimes, politicians get caught up, like you say, in the campaign, and they say and do things that they really don't know what it means. And th- and this is this is a case in point.
0: Well, maybe, like I say, I think people want to give them the benefit of the doubt. Uh, And there's there's a case to be built for this. I mean, let's connect some dots here. I mean, last week they finally announced that the budget office, this is an independent agency, uh, announced that uh, the deficit here is half of what the uh, the Ford government said it was here in the province of Ontario. I, I don't know if they can look at that now and, and st- figure they've got a little bit of wiggle room here. I mean, that might be justification. I'm just cynical because this is a story that actually got leaked simply because of a directive that came out that said, don't put those inserts into the checks. Didn't say we're canceling the program at all. Uh, and I think the government—well, since they're not even sitting right now—but it'd be nice to hear from somebody in the government to say, "Yeah, we've changed our minds about that," and instead of saying, "Yeah, we've just decided to put it off until after the election," we need a little clarity here. I think.
1: Oh, we certainly do, but um, uh, you know, my concern is that you know the scenario you painted is absolutely right. Is about this just be postponed, and and that'll that'll be a shame.
0: And if I'm wrong, that, that'd be great yeah, uh, that, I mean, absolutely. for the sake of everybody involved. But let me hear from the government before that, because, I mean, we've seen this happen before. Uh, you know, you only want good news during elections. You don't want this sort of, sort of thing going on. And the whole reason that the, the obviously the, the legislature is not going back until the week after the federal election, well, I think it's pretty obvious to everybody. They don't want this government, which seems to shoot themselves in the foot on a pretty consistent basis with some of their announcements. They don't want these guys doing any of that stuff during the election campaign.
1: Well, right now, Mr. Shearer, and I just to switch over to federal politics is right now holding his breath because he's he's close to forming a minority government, and and he doesn't want anything jeopardizing
0: that. And you know how the the other teams, both the Liberals, the Greens, and and the NDP, of course, are going to spin this. Uh, you know when those notices go out, and they're there right now. Uh, they're simply going to say, see, this is what you're going to get. And they've already tried that tact. And we'll find out on the 21st, I guess, if it's going to be effective or not. Well, exactly.
1: Bill, before we run, can I do? Can I say something? Yeah, yeah. I, I want to give a shout-out to one of your listeners. Sure. Paul Elms, he's an auxiliary OPP sergeant, and he's retiring in a big party for him this week after – 50 that's 50 years wow. of volunteering in Burlington and uh I just want to wish him and his wife Betty Ann who's a great listener of yours Bill that all the best this week because it's, uh, it's it means a lot to uh to him and it certainly means a lot to the public for to have somebody volunteer for that many years.
0: That's incredible. Well, listen, happy retirement, and uh, and thanks for the service. I have Fifty years of service to the community is just incredible. That is, isn't it? Remarkable stuff. Uh, Richard Brennan, of course, uh, former uh, journalist with the Toronto Star covering Queens Park. As always, Richard, thanks so much for this. Thanks, Bill. Talk again soon. Bye.
2: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: We'll talk about a number of different things that are being proposed by all the parties, of course, as we head towards our federal election on October the 21st. Uh, Andrew Shear made an announcement yesterday in the Toronto area, says that if he's elected, he's going to relax the mortgage stress test uh, that has been in place for the last couple of years now. Uh, now, that's getting mixed reaction, quite frankly. Some consumer groups and home builders just say, what a great idea, yeah, let's get this done. Uh, but there are some words of caution coming from a couple of other agencies that all have some uh, say in this. I want to get Marvin Reiter into the conversation, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Uh, thanks for coming in today. Glad to be here. Do you have whiplash yet from all of these <laughs> promises and
3: things? I mean, it seems every day I get three more promises and you add them together. I would think the average voter is having a hard time keeping track of well, who's promising
0: what when. We're just inundated with good news and oh, happy happy thoughts, right? Exactly. We're going to make hope ownership. You're a homeowner. I'm a homeowner. Yeah, I, I, hey, I'd love to make it easier for people like this. I just had a long discussion with my son on the weekend about this. They're at that stage. They're renting, ah. they want to buy. Okay. Good luck with the down payment. Yes. So I'm, I'm sure, Marvin, that there are some people that are going to hear this this proposal and say great idea. Uh, give me the, the good, the bad, and the ugly on this. <laughs> so Bill, the Andrew Shears proposal, I think for the
3: average person, has two key components to it. The first is a change to the potential amortization of a mortgage. Now, I'm going to give you a little context for this. When Stephen Harper was first elected way back in the early 2000s, mm-hmm. one of his first missions as prime minister was to expand the uh, amortization to 40 years. You could get I a 40-year mortgage. So if you're 25, you could have a mortgage till you're age 65. Isn't that wonderful? And then, and then Stephen Harper began to rethink this. And so three years later, he said, I, I think I went too far. Let's make it 35." Then we had the recession of 2007-8, and he said, yeah, let's make it 30. And then in 2010, he and Jim Flaherty said, you know, 30 is too long, too. Let's make it 25. So this is nothing the liberals did. This is what the conservatives did under Stephen Harper the Liberals under Justin Trudeau haven't changed this. But what Shear is proposing is that we should go back to 30-year amortizations. Now what's the difference between a 25 and a 30-year amortization? You pay the principal back over a longer period of time. Because you pay it over a longer period of time, your monthly payments are a little less. So if you're having a tough time either getting a mortgage or, or paying your mortgage, if I can let you go to 30 years, you can bring your cost down. Um, that would let more people into the market. The second thing he's proposing, and this was actually um, originally again proposed by Stephen Harper, but the Liberals really tightened up the rules, and that was this idea of a stress test. Mm -hmm. We know historically in Canada, if we can go back right to the time that we became a country, the average mortgage rate over the last 150 or so years has been about 5 to 6 percent. That's what you pay for a mortgage, 5 to 6 percent. But since 2007, mortgage rates have been unusually low. In fact, there was a time where you could get a mortgage at around two and three quarters percent. Today it's between three and four percent. But we know looking forward, looking ahead, that probably won't last. We'll probably eventually get back to the average of five to six percent. So what the liberals proposed was that when you were going to get a mortgage, they would stress test you, meaning, yes, they'd see what you could carry today, but then they would add a percentage and say, could you still carry it? So if you have that mortgage at 3.5 and everything looks good, could you still carry the mortgage at 4.5%? And if the answer was no, then they wouldn't give you the mortgage they wanted. They would have to reduce the amount that you could borrow. So what Mr. Shear has proposed is, well, that, that stress test is too severe and we should knock it back just a little. Rather than adding a percent, he just wants to add three-quarters of a percent. Um, And that, again, would allow some people into the market or get them a little more borrowing room than they had before under the old stress test. Now, who's happy about all this? Well, since these stress tests were introduced, the market has cooled a little bit. What does that mean? The volume of houses being sold has dropped a little bit. I would say to you they've dropped back to what were, again, historical norms. Mm -hmm. We were going through a period there where it was house of fire, so to speak. It was insanity. Insanity in the housing market. And not only was there great volumes of houses being sold, but prices were going up. Well, remember, there were
0: bidding wars on houses. Uh, And the
3: prices were going up 10% a year. That's not a sustainable rate. We've calmed all that down now. So, yes, I know if I'm a real estate agent, I, I love selling homes, and if the volume's down, I'm not going to do as well. And if housing prices are only going up now at the rate of maybe 3% a year rather than 10 so this is the concern. If he stimulates the housing market, we may suddenly see prices start to shoot up again. We may see volume shoot up, which is great news if you build homes. It's great news if you sell homes. But is it great news for everybody else? And that's this is the balancing act that a government has to do.
0: But we don't want to get into that cycle, uh, because that was insanity. And that was actually prohibiting a lot of people from getting into houses, too. I mean, you know, somebody would come along and say, look, I've just scraped enough of money for a down payment. Uh, and I kind of like that house. And well, Bing, it's gone, it's off the market. Yeah, and like I said... there were Oh, you
3: only offered five hundred thousand? You should have offered six because yeah. then
0: you'd get it for sure. You had to go in high. I mean, I knew a guy that was doing some speculating at that time and he said, I here's the list price. I gotta go in higher, I'm not even gonna get considered. And and that's that's gonna be prohibitive for an awful lot of people. But the other end of that scale, Marvin, is what we saw happen in the States around two thousand eight, two thousand nine, where they said, Yeah, you can have a mortgage, you got ten bucks down, sure. Here, here's your mortgage. Yeah. Uh and, and a lot of people, when, when all of a sudden the, the market started to go down, s- just said, here are the keys. I can't do this anymore. Right. And they walked away. Well, the great
3: news about, or I'm going to say it like this, the great news about Andrew Shear's proposal in this sense is he hasn't changed the amount you have to have to do a down payment. There was a brief time in Canada where you could only have 5% down. I remember that, And yeah. you'd borrow 95%. Uh, that's where you get into that trouble, because then if suddenly house pricing changes, you owe more than the value of your house. Or interest rates go up. Interest, or something happens, and you owe more than the house is worth, and that's when you just hand in the keys. And that saw we saw that in Southern California, in Nevada, in Florida, mm-hmm. and in Arizona, and, and there are actually whole neighborhoods where maybe only one person lived or two people lived. The rest of the houses were sitting empty because they had this tremendous price inversion. He's not, he's not changing that part of the rule. So his, his game plan here is to ease things a little, not so much that you would get a price war started again, not so much that you'd get the overheated market, but at the same time he wants to appeal to some voters who feel that they're trapped, they're trapped in rental accommodation, that nobody's trying to help them get out, Now, one other quick note on this, and I'm not trying to sound like I'm in favor of one political party or the other, way back on day two of this election campaign, and this is why I'm talking about all those promises, the liberals talked about home ownership. And you might remember, Bill, that in this year's budget, they had a little plan so that if you are a family with a a household income of $120,000 or more, they were going to help you. Some of this would be a loan to help you make a down payment, keep your costs down, so on and so forth. And they announced that they were prepared to take that plan and now extend it to people who earn up to $150,000 a year a little more of the middle class, not really as much in Hamilton, but certainly for Toronto, a family with $150,000, that's still a real struggle to buy a house. That was their attempt to appeal to the same market. And I am sure before this campaign is over, Jagmeet Singh is going to have one as well, Mm -hmm. because this question of home ownership is the biggest asset anyone acquires in their life. It's the most prized asset you acquire in your life. And yet there is a group of younger people, people that I teach at university and then graduate who – who think, maybe I'll never be able to own a home, this is who these people are trying to appeal to in this campaign right now.
0: Okay, and and as you mentioned, home builders are ecstatic about this. Real estate agents are giddy with this idea. Uh, but not everybody is on side with this. Uh, Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation uh, didn't officially comment on this. They, what they said was, our previous statements are still in place. And uh, that was stuff that was done by a guy named Evan Siddle, who's uh, the, the big cheese patty up there who basically says the mortgage stress test is exactly the kind of policy we need to protect our economy. And uh, the Bank of Canada makes a similar comment as well. Now, they're supposed to be the guardians of all this stuff, and they're saying, "Uh uh-uh, don't go there.
3: Right. Well, again, in fairness to Mr. Sherry, if he had said eliminate the stress test altogether or make the stress test a quarter of a point, I think everyone really would be. He's only moved the stress test from adding one percentage to the mortgage to three-quarters of a percent. So he's only fiddling on the margins. And this is his attempt to kind of, can I get a little something, get a little bit of good news, look like I'm the champion for the middle class, and yet at the same time not send panic through the stock markets in any way. Um, And that's his game at this moment. Sure. The only other thing I worry about here, Bill, though, is um, the stress test is run by something known as the Independent Financial uh, something rather, service operator or something to that extent, which is at arm's length from the government. They don't actually take direction from the government. They decide what's best for the economy. Mm-hmm. And for him to change the stress test mean he has to lean on them or meddle with them or interfere with them in somehow. And I don't necessarily like that idea, the same way we didn't necessarily like Mr. Trudeau trying to influence Jody Wilson Ray Bold, I wouldn't be very keen on Andrew Scheer Suddenly trying to go to the independent officer and say, hey, what can you do for me? Can you soften up that stress test? Both of those are wrong.
0: Uh, yeah, we, the independent officer, we'd rather was not so independent. Huh? So, we'd rather you just followed our policies in situations like this. How, how far down this road can they go? Uh, you know, because every time this this discussion about housing and housing affordability comes up, we start getting into some of the stuff that we've seen in other, in, well, for instance, in the United States uh, mm-hmm. d- d- demographic too, where, where you can write off your mortgage payments. It's a tax deduction. Uh, you know, they we've talked about the length of, of the mortgage and you know, whether or not it's going to go up. And as you say, the, the, when Flaherty was the finance minister, we bounced all over the place like this. Uh, is there a lot of wiggle room here at all? A lot? No. A
3: little, yes. Um- Again, just again to go your, your point, when when Andrew Shear makes these comments and suggests maybe some more people can get into the market, they'll either be able to get a little bigger mortgage and buy a little bigger house or more of the house that they want or what have you. The other thing that quickly comes up is the debt load that we've got as yeah. Canadians. Right, right today, Bill, uh, we owe on average. This isn't necessarily me or you, but on average, a dollar seventy-seven for every dollar we take in in income. So we are highly leveraged as it is. And and many people are concerned about that because that says if there is a recession, then what are people going to do? You're already so levered. And if you lose a job or, or, you know, somebody is downsized or maybe pays are frozen for a while, how are you going to just manage the debt load as it is? And if we make it easier for people to borrow more, are more people not going to get into trouble with this? And unfortunately, you and I are not the best arbiter of this because we, citizens at large, get ourselves into trouble. We take credit cards and ring up a debt and then can't pay, or we go out and get a mortgage that we really can't afford and then we can't pay. And so what we don't want, and this is the fear, is that the current economic climate might change. Bill, you might remember in August we had a I I don't know whether I did one with you, but I did it with many other people, an interview around these what was called an inverted yield curve at the time. And that always says about a year after that happens, you get a recession. Yeah. So I'm not saying there will be a recession in 2020, but we haven't had a recession now since 2007. That's 12 years. Normally we have a recession every 10 years. So I'm not saying we have to have one but it wouldn't shock the heck out of me if we did and and Are we battening down the hatches, or is this the time to release or relax some of these rules at a time when maybe people should be going the other way, getting debt loads down, not taking on a bigger mortgage? But Andrew Scheer, this is a political thing. All of these statements they're making are political things to try to win over votes, specifically from the middle class, some of whom feel, I can't get the house I want.
0: Well, with this announcement yesterday, there are still some people that are observers, I guess, of the industry, Marvin, uh, suggesting that if there's a, a jump in interest rate, that some people that are just going to squeak into the market now, if this policy ever became the the policy of the land, uh, and then they're going to get trapped. Uh, it, the rates go up uh, a point, two points, whatever the case might be. That makes a significant difference to them, and they say that they could create a scenario where you do have people dropping the keys off at the yeah. bank.
3: Well. Again, I don't want to sound like I'm ringing an alarm bell here. Uh, interest rates today, as you know, the Bank account is at 1.75%. That's their lending rate to the banks. The banks then add something and your mortgage rate is around 3.5%, 4%. Um, for us to get that scenario, we'd see interest rates go up 2%, and they'd have to go up 2% in a fairly short order, like in a year, year and a half. At this moment, my crystal ball says we don't think that's going to happen. We think interest rates, to the extent they're going to go up, will go up a quarter point here, a quarter point there. If they go up a full percentage point, that would probably be a year and a half, and you would see it coming. In other words, you'd have some some time to batten down the hatches. But remember the concern is crystal balls aren't perfect, and if you had a sudden jump, and you and I, unfortunately, unfortunately, we're old enough to remember <laughs> a recession in the early 1980s when prime interest rates hit 21 percent in yep, Canada. Yep. Uh, I jumped into the housing market in 1988, and my first mortgage was at 11 and a quarter percent. And when I say that to people now, they think I went to a loan shark. But that was <laughs> CIBC. That was a good mortgage rate in 1987, 1988. The rates you're seeing now at your mortgages are abnormally low and, and unfortunately they have been so low for so long there is a uh, maybe even a generation of Canadians that can never possibly imagine a mortgage at 5% or 6% and yet I'm trying to warn people to say that is the more typical mortgage rate so when you get into the market congratulations you got in at a low point but be ready because we may get back there certainly within the next five years.
0: Yeah, and therein lies the problem. What goes up must come down, and what goes down must come up. That's that's economy, yes. and that's the way it throws. Always a pleasure, Marvin. Thanks for being here Glad today. Glad to be here. Marvin Ryder from uh, the Do Good School of Business.
2: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Well, the U.K. Supreme Court has ruled the suspension of par- parliament uh, proroguing, I guess more uh, is the phrase that we use oftentimes, uh, by Boris Johnson, uh, was illegal, declaring the order void and of no effect. Now, the suspension uh, the Supreme Court ordered was unlawful, uh, according to the Supreme Court, rather, because it had the effect of frustrating or preventing the ability of Parliament to carry out its functions without reasonable justification. Uh, Boris Johnson is not pleased with this, as you might expect, and it's uh, caused a great deal of uh, fewer, as if there wasn't already enough of that going on in the UK Parliament. Joining us to talk about this is Redmond Shannon. Redmond, of course, is the European correspondent with Global News Canada uh, in London today. Redmond, thank you so much for the time on a busy day. Glad you could join us. No problem. Good morning, Bill. What's uh, what's the immediate reaction, Redmond, uh, over there? Obviously, we've heard from Jeremy Corbyn and others about this, but uh, was this a surprise ruling?
2: Uh, surprise is not the word I'd probably use, Bill, because of all the uh, types of courts where you might get an indication or hints depending on timing of a verdict, the UK Supreme Court, uh, experts say, is impossible to predict how uh, verdicts will go. But it certainly wasn't uh, on the fence when it was put down because the 11 judges of the UK Supreme Court all unanimously ruling that Boris Johnson's um decision to advise the Queen to prorogue Parliament for five weeks in this crucial period leading up to Brexit. They ruled that that was unlawful. And the President of the Supreme Court, uh, Baroness uh, Brenda Hale, said, she said, the effect on the fundamentals of democracy was extreme. And that is quite the statement to make about a sitting Prime Minister when ruling that his actions were unlawful. So, Uh, it's perhaps surprising the, some of the language that was used by the president of the Supreme Court in issuing this down. And of course, the reaction, as you hinted at there, from the leader of the opposition, Jeremy Corbyn, to leaders of other opposition parties here go from suggesting that Boris Johnson should step down to uh imploring him to step down. But of course, unsurprisingly, Boris Johnson says he will do no such thing. This being the just the two month anniversary of him taking over as prime minister. And so much has happened in that two months.
0: Redmond, is there any indication about the ramifications? I mean, the obvious one is, as obviously, said, the, the parliament's going to have to go re- back into session, but thank, although the court says it was never really out of session, according to the ruling. But, but they kept using the word I, I, two or three times she mentioned unlawful. Are, are there personal ramifications to a prime minister that does something unlawful?
2: This is a breaking of constitutional law rather than okay. criminal law. So it would not be a case of uh, a case of whereby the prime minister would face any criminal proceedings. Um, so this would be seen in a, in a very different light. If somebody went to the police and made a complaint that the prime minister had... Um, done something in contravention with criminal law in connection with this, that would be different. But right now, no, the only uh, immediate consequence is, as you say, that Parliament will have to reconvene, and it will do so at 11.30am local time tomorrow. The Speaker of the House of Commons, John Burko, came out shortly after the ruling, saying that he will uh, reconvene Parliament, the doors will be open, and everything will be back in session tomorrow. And Boris Johnson will be heading back overnight from the United Nations General assembly where he is right now, listening to Donald Trump speaking in New York as we speak. But he uh, he had qu- actually, Boris Johnson was speaking to Canadian and a US business leaders in New York at a at a meeting uh, a few hours ago. Got a great reception there, made a lot of jokes, very friendly reception. It will be anything but when he comes back to town tomorrow.
0: What are the ramifications once they get back into session? And, and, and Speaker Burko calls them back in Uh, because obviously, uh, as you and I talked about, I guess, a couple of weeks ago now, Redmond, uh, the indication seemed to be he prorogued Parliament in the first place to try to cool things down a little bit about the the Brexit uh, or the no Brexit, whatever is going to be happening here. Uh, That's right back on the front burner now, isn't
2: it? Well, absolutely. And before he was able to prorogue Parliament, uh, the opposition and many of his own MPs got together to um, compel him to ask for a delay to Brexit uh, should he not be able to agree, agree a deal with the EU by October 19th. So the clock is ticking less than a month away for that. There is absolutely no indication that he is anywhere near agreeing a deal that the EU will see as acceptable. So if he doesn't agree a deal by October 19th, the law compels him, already does compel him, to look and ask for an extension to Brexit. He says he will do no such thing and he will take the uk out of the eu on october 31st deal or no deal that would be the prime minister then theoretically twice in the space of a month or in the space of 2 months breaking the law now the the one thing that could very much stop him from doing that Uh, is, of course, a general election, because if you have all those MPs in the opposition and the rebel MPs in his own Conservative Party teaming up, they could pull down the government and trigger an election. The catch-22 with that bill is that if an election is called, Parliament's out of session, and the UK could drop out of the EU automatically on October 31st. So it really is completely uncharted territory. We don't know where it's going to go, but we know it will be pretty uh raucous once um the prime minister faces the wrath of the opposition in parliament be that tomorrow or later this week
0: radman what about the wrath of the, the, his own party in parliament I mean, it, you know johnson is speaking uh, assumingly from a position of power here except he doesn't have a position of power i mean there was insurrection in the ranks uh within his own party right now too so i mean wh- where does that leave him now with his own
2: party well he you see when he took over power he had him as an a working majority of plus 1 mm-hmm. uh that including the 10 uh, democratic unionist party mps who support the government but at the the very moment he stood up in the house of commons for his first pr- prime minister questions time Prime minister questions rather he um One of his MPs walked across the floor to the opposition, thereby removing his majority. He then had those rebel MPs, 21 of them, um, vote against him. He threw them all out of the the governing Conservative Party in the parliament. So he is nowhere near a majority. So he has very little control over what happens in parliament. And the MPs who are left in the Conservative Party, most of them would appear to be loyal. Of course, that doesn't even include his own brother who jumped ship. (laughs) And if your own brother jumps, you know it's difficult. One former, one critic of Boris Johnson in the Conservative Party, uh, uh, former Attorney General Dominic Grieve, you know, described uh, the Prime Minister's actions this morning as a gross misbehaviour and saying that the ruling proved this. So he's a lot of critics in his own party and he doesn't have enough MPs on his side, it looks like, to safely guide him through for very much longer. And he could become the shortest serving Prime Minister in British history. What about the possibility of an election? You just mentioned that
0: a couple of seconds ago, Redmond. That's out there uh, when it was being speculated upon uh, a couple of weeks ago. There seemed to be a feeling that, no, 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 there's too many pitfalls for both parties, both the the Labour Party and the Conservatives, if they were to go to the polls. And then, of course, as you mentioned, there's the sort of Damocles here, the Brexit thing hanging over everybody's head. Are we closer to election in the UK now because of this?
2: Yes, I think we are. There's a an academic who, um every time something changes with Brexit, puts out one of these flow charts, you know, if this happens, yes, if no, then go to this step, then go to that step, blah, blah, blah. And painting out a picture of all the different paths to what may happen. Right now, according to his latest flow chart, the probability of a general election before the end of the year is 88%, far outweighing, obviously, any other potential outcome. So, the 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 odds seem to suggest we're heading to a general election the numbers suggest that in parliament too and that would be uh give or take the third general election since 2015 in the space of 4 years and with, along with the referendum and potentially a second referendum a lot of people here are very sick of voting that's for sure What's the word on the street, though, about Boris Johnson? I mean, there's an awful lot of people that
0: are very upset, as we mentioned, even within his own party right now, and, and other conservative supporters as voters. But the possibility of a Prime Minister, Jerry Corbyn, is not very palatable to an awful lot of people. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't, as far as the, the voters are concerned.
2: Yeah, that's right. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn is a very divisive figure. He leads the Labour Party. And you would think the Labour Party coming up against this chaotic, disastrous government should be leading in the polls. It's not. And it's well behind the Conservatives. Of course, neither of them are anywhere anywhere near uh, majority government figures on their own, because they're both divided parties. The Labour Party currently has its own convention going on right now. It is divided on how to... How to take its position on Brexit? Jeremy Corbyn, its leader, wants the people to decide. He won't take his position because he is known to be a skeptic of of the EU himself. However, an, an awful lot of people in his party are anti Brexit, so you have a huge amount of division there and a lot of other issues. Uh, Jeremy, for which Jeremy Corbyn is extremely, uh, because he's extremely controversial. For example, putting forward a proposal this week to ban private schools in the UK. That is extremely controversial, obviously, a nod to Prime Minister Boris Johnson and many of his predecessors who went to private schools. And a lot of, uh, of uh, the Labour Party MPs and prominent MPs have children who went to private schools, yet this party wants to abolish them. That's where the far left direction Jeremy Corbyn is, wants to take the country, Boris Johnson edging towards the far right. But they're both their parties are very split too. It really is a country whose. Politics is in chaos right now, Bill.
0: Well, as you know, Redmond uh, Tony Blair was one of those guys that went to private school. That was part of the highlight of the tour when we were in Edinburgh a couple of years ago. Uh, it, it just shows you how far Corbyn has taken the the Labour Party back to the left, hasn't it?
2: It's a very different party now to, to that of what it was in the in the uh, Blair years. It really Blair took it very much towards the centre, a party that would have been similar to the Liberal Party in Canada, but now Labour has moved much more to the left to its trade unionist roots, to its social democratic roots. um, That's a reaction somewhat to the Blair years, uh, but it obviously alienates a lot of people who perhaps sit in the centre of politics uh, in in the UK.
0: Redmond, uh, a tumultuous day today. Thank you so much for spending some time with us uh, to try to add some clarity to this. We'll be uh, watching for your reporting tonight on uh, Global National with Donna Friesen. Thanks for this today. No problem, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Redmond Shannon, European correspondent, of course, uh, with Global News Canada. Uh, I want to bring Dr. Andrew Glencross into the conversation, senior uh, lecturer at the Department of Politics and International Relations at Aston University in uh, Birmingham. Uh, Andrew, first of all, thank you so much for the time today. It's uh, kind of a crazy day in the UK today, uh, but a not totally unexpected result, I guess, from the Supreme Court, is it?
4: No. When they scheduled it originally last week to say that they would decide on Tuesday the chances were that it was looking unfavorable towards the
0: government position. So with that in mind and with the anticipation that uh, that Johnson was going to get shot down, uh, I'm not sure anybody thought it was going to be as as, as strong as it was a unanimous vote by the court, uh, It was, was there an anticipation to develop a Plan B here? In other words, uh, what are we going to do now in such a short period of time?
4: Well behind the scenes, which we're not privy to of course, there might be, the decision might be taken now to actually let one of his advisors go because there's still the possibility of blaming bad advice to Boris for the bad advice, in effect, that he gave the Queen. So there might be that plan B hatched in the background. But otherwise, so far, the government seems to be scrambling to get a coherent response here.
0: Uh, so in other words, somebody's going to have to pay the price. Somebody's going to have to be the fall guy, and it, it's, uh, it's never Boris Johnson, is it?
4: So far, not because he's been asked quite directly today if he would resign, and he's batted away that question. So he's staying for the foreseeable.
0: And what is the foreseeable future? I mean, we've heard speculation uh, so far about an election call. Uh, We've heard speculation about another referendum that could be called, Uh, neither of which Johnson seems to be in favor of, but it sounds as if somebody's going to force him down one of those roads.
4: Yeah, he's in a really uncomfortable situation right now because... Parliament is going to meet tomorrow, and that coincides pretty much with the start of the Conservative Party conference. So there's going to be the conference going on for his party where he's supposed to lay out his big agenda for after Brexit, and yet Parliament is still meeting to essentially thwart all his Brexit-related plans. So there's a complete contradiction at the heart of the British government right now, which eventually has to be resolved.
0: And with the speculation about uh, what might happen with Brexit, uh, there is also the issue of, excuse me, the insurrection in the conservative ranks these days. Uh, You know, even, you know, Johnson's own brother actually has left the party now uh, because of the way that he's handled the Brexit situation. we remember what happened last year, of course, with the Theresa May and the vote of non-confidence, and they said, well, that ha- can't happen. But there's a new leader now. Boris Johnson, obviously, uh, is, is different from May, and, and those rules, I would come back into play. Is there that much discontent within the Conservative Party right now that they might just have some, some, uh, some buyer remorse about putting Johnson at the top of the heap anyway?
4: Well, the real test is going to be this week, because Parliament will have to vote re- whether or not to actually call a recess. So not a prorogation where all business of Parliament ends, but rather just a temporary um, relocation of MPs. And that needs the majority to pass. So will the Conservative MPs that Boris Johnson has expelled and alienated actually vote for this recess to allow the Conservative Party conference to go ahead whilst Parliament isn't still standing? So it's total madness.
0: Would they actually do that, though, Andrew? I mean, that, that's kind of giving—that's, you know, letting Johnson get his way. And in. in other words, you can't prorogue, but we'll just call a recess. Then, basically, it, it's the same effect, I guess, of what he wants is just some time out away from uh, the House of Parliament right now uh, so that everything can kind of cool down and Brexit can—well, the, the the Brexit without a deal, I guess, could move forward.
4: Yes, but it would be for a much shorter period, yeah. and it would also not— Um, change anything with regard to the forthcoming Queen's speech, which in itself might be the second moment where we'll really see the test of those Conservative MPs' loyalty, because the plan seems to be at the moment to have a vote on the Queen's speech that is associated potentially with Boris Johnson's version of a deal with the EU, if that materialises. And so that might be the time where we really see whether or not he has any support from within his his own ranks still.
0: Is there any indication at all, Andrew, that there has been any discussion between uh, the Prime Minister and, and the EU about this? Because uh, there was there was a, a great deal of concern and consternation, I guess, a couple of weeks ago before the prorogation was actually put in place, uh, that I know Johnson was saying that he was talking about a deal, but they didn't have any indication or any evidence that there was actually any, any correspondence going back and forth.
4: There's certainly a lot of talk, but from the EU side, it looks more and more like hot air, because... These moves where the government is being voted down in Parliament, is now being ruled to have acted unlawfully by the Supreme Court, all of these things, they undermine the credibility of Boris Johnson as a negotiating partner. Because if he says one thing, does something completely different, then why is he not going to do exactly the same towards the EU? So the EU now has much more of an incentive, to bide its time and wait for a new election or a referendum again to unlock the potential for a deal.
0: So they're basically going to let Boris Johnson twist in the wind here and and let the political uh, machinations occur in the UK and whatever happens, happens. That that seems to be the EU approach here?
4: Well, think about it from this perspective. Would you want to be doing a deal with Boris (laughs) just based on his personal credentials (laughs) and also on whether or not he could get that thing through Parliament? Think about that.
0: Absolutely. Uh there was some consternation obviously from the uh, in the in the economy of course about the a Brexit deal Andrew, and the the impact it was going to have. Uh with the prorogation that was only in place for a little while with did did that settle down and is, is it liable to, to to ramp up again? I mean there's a a great deal of 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 anxiousness I guess on behalf of uh, a number of uh, the businesses over in the UK right now about the impact of Brexit.
4: Yeah, I mean people are playing really with that their- hands tied behind their back when it comes to competing on international markets and trying to think ahead about planning orders and imports and exports. So the probability, it seems, about the no deal option, which is the worst possible option for business, is considered to be around 60%. And yet it doesn't feel on an everyday basis when you look at financial markets, mortgages, all of these it doesn't feel like we are 60% chance of really having a very bad outcome. So it feels like a lot of businesses, a lot of business leaders are just hoping for the best.
0: It's going to be a raucous session and question period tomorrow in the Parliament. Uh, Well worth watching. I'd love to have a seat in the gallery for that one. Uh, Alan, as always, thank you so much for your perspective. Great that you could join us today. Thanks, Bill. Take care. That's uh, Dr. Andrew Glencross, of course, from the, uh, the Department of Politics at Aston University in Birmingham.